0: Welcome to Audiobook Test Drive. In today's episode, we are featuring an excerpt from House of Cards, Dead Men Tell No Tales, Detective Louis Martelli, NYPD, Mystery Thriller Series, Book 2, written by Theodore Jerome Cohen. An edge-of-your-seat mystery thriller. Who killed Matthew B. Richardson III, banksters or Islamic terrorists? The head of one of the largest investment banking and securities firms in the United States has been assassinated in Times Square in the middle of New York City's annual celebration of Halloween, the Festival of the Dead. Louis Martelli, NYPD, is one of the first detectives on the scene the case rapidly spirals downward into a maelstrom of death and intrigue linked both to the financial meltdown of two thousand eight and international terrorism who is behind the murders and why is the fbi attempting to shut down martelli's investigation before it can get started Martelli eventually learns the answers to these and other questions, but not before discovering how two Wall Street financial institutions have been complicit in funding Islamic terrorism. And now for your listening pleasure, an excerpt from House of Cards.
1: Chapter 1 Broadway, New York City, Halloween, October thirty-first, two 2010 the scene had all the appearance of Chalmun's Cantina, located in the pirate city of Mos Eisley, on the planet Tatooine, in the Star Wars universe. While Jabba the Hutt, as well as the Aqualish, were absent from the Great White Way, there was no shortage of their earthly counterparts. Among the more prevalent were prostitutes dressed as young girls, young girls dressed as prostitutes, prostitutes, scantily dressed girls of age three and four with garish rouge, Eyeliner, lipstick, and coiffured hair, escorted by their mothers, some of whom were dressed as cheerleaders, clowns, the usual smattering of political figures, costumes usually worn by boys, movie stars, cowboys, and in general, people dressed in just about every costume imaginable, and some that left nothing to the imagination. Tonight, this was the center of our universe, and as long as the crowd was peaceful, the police, who were in great abundance, tended to ignore those celebrants who were jaywalking and committing other minor illegalities. Room on the sidewalk was at a premium, and in places, progress was measured in baby steps as individuals inched their way toward whatever destinations they had in mind. It was into this maelstrom of humankind that Matthew B. Richardson III and his wife Colette gently pushed their way out of the Lyceum Theater on West 45th Street, Following the opening night performance of the musical The Scottsboro Boys. C'était magnifique. Matthew? Colette grabbed his left arm and laid her hat on his shoulder as they walked. But this could not be true, could it? Uh, tell me, this could not have happened in America. I'm afraid it's all too true, my dear. And this play I only scratched the surface of one of the darkest periods on my country's history. Uh, did you enjoy the performance, Monimore? Actually, I did. But frankly, I'm concerned that most people today really don't want to confront the ugly truths told in that story. Even more disconcerting to many, I think, will be the fact that one white cast member, the only white cast member, plays an M.C. known as the interlocutor, the Alabama governor and a judge. (laughs) If someone were to ask me, I think the show is a stunning theatrical success, but will prove a box office failure. They walked arm-in-arm toward 7th Avenue, at which point they turned southwest and made their way toward Times Square. Ordinarily, Matthew would have had his driver, Yafar, wait in his limousine in front of the theater. As the president, chief executive officer, and chairman of the board of Richardson, Stanfield, and Cooper, one of the largest investment banking and securities firms in the United States, he had a car and driver available to him 24 hours a day, anywhere in the world. But tonight... In deference to his wife's pleadings to experience a Halloween celebration unlike any other in the country, perhaps the world, he instructed his driver to wait for them at the intersection of Broadway and West 38th Street. It was difficult for him to say no to her. Colette had entered his life in the spring of 2003, a time when he was experiencing deep anguish. A year earlier, Estelle, his wife of 30 years, had passed away from ovarian cancer after a short but painful battle with the disease. With no children, and in his mid-fifties at the time, he faced the future with despair. Hopeless was the way he described it to his best friend, Sanjar Shahrastani. Shahrastani, an Iranian-American, not only ran a large hedge fund, but advised Matthew's firm on investments for its clients as well. The two men had known each other for 18 years, When Estelle was alive, the Richardsons and Shavrastanis could be found together on many weekends throughout the year, enjoying the opening of a new play on Broadway, dining in one of New York's finer restaurants, or simply relaxing in the pool of Shavrastani's magnificent home in the Hamptons. After Estelle's death, Richardson threw himself into his work, sometimes arriving at his office in New York's Financial District by 5.30 in the morning, and not leaving until well past ten at night. His temper grew shorter with time, and even his executive staff, with whom he had worked closely for more than ten years, began calling him Ivan the Terrible behind his back. Richardson's secretary, Grace Simons, a woman in her early sixties who had been with the firm since it was founded by Richardson's father almost four decades earlier, dissolved in tears one afternoon under a withering attack from her boss over her having mislaid notes he had dictated— By the time he cooled down and returned to apologize, the woman had cleaned out her desk and left the building never to return. It was as if Matthew was permanently stuck in the third stage of grief. Anger. But all this changed in May 2003, when on a business trip to Paris, he ran into Soundjar at a conference on international economic policy. The two greeted each other warmly, throwing their arms around each other and patting each other's back. Matthew, my dear friend, how are you? My God, it's good to see you. Of the two, Rastani clearly was the more enthusiastic. Sanjar, so nice to see you. Matthew managed a weak smile. Matthew, I've arranged for several clients to join me for a dinner cruise on the Seine tonight. You will join us, yes? I won't take no for an answer. Oh, Sanjar, as much as I appreciate your generous offer, I'm afraid I can't. I would make very good company. Matthew, I said, I won't take no for an answer. Besides, I have a lovely young woman I want you to meet. Her name is? No, wait a minute, Sanjar. I don't really think. Matthew, this isn't about you. This is about a young woman who recently lost her husband. He was another dear friend, and client of mine, who was tragically killed in an automobile accident in the French Pyrenees last winter. His name was Remy Massot, and not the young industrialist who had recently completed that 700 million euro acquisition of the shipyard in the Saint-Nazaire. I read about his death. Uh, tragic. Simply tragic. It was a great loss to his wife, to me personally, and of course to France. Madame Massot has been in mourning since his death, and I fear for her health. I want desperately to help her, and... "'You as well. So put aside your feelings for a moment and consider this. "'If you would agree to dinner, I think I can convince her to join us "'by assuring her that the good company, fresh air, and fine food, would be a tonic. "'Something good for her spirit. "'Something her husband most assuredly would have wanted for her to experience.' "'I don't know, Sanjar. "'Then it's done, my friend.' It was not easy to argue with the Iranian, regardless of the topic. I'll make all the arrangements. He took out a business card and scribbled a location on the back. Give these to the taxi driver. The boat leaves Notre Dame exactly at twenty hundred hours. Don't be late. Au revoir. With that, he waved to an acquaintance across the auditorium's entrance hall and sprinted off, leaving Matthew looking down at the business card in his hand. Au revoir, Sanja. His words were barely audible. Richardson alighted from the taxi shortly before 8 p.m. and made his way down the stone embankment to the gangplank leading to the luxury dinner boat. He was greeted on deck by the captain and escorted inside by one of the ship's officers. His host already was aboard, standing next to the baby grand piano in the far corner of the ship's dining room near the stern. Sanjar waved him over. Matthew, Matthew, come here. "'I want you to meet Madame Colette Massot. "'Colette, je voudrais présenter Matthew B. Richardson, the third. "'Colette, a woman of medium height "'whose short blonde hair contained platinum highlights, "'was wearing a simple but elegant pleated black cocktail dress. "'A perfectly matched string of fifty pearls hung around her neck. "'She was in her early forties, "'yet looked as if she had just stepped off a runway show "'during Paris Fashion Week. "'She looked up, smiled at Matthew, and extended her right hand, which he accepted and kissed. Charmed, madame Marceau. Ah, chante! I'm afraid my French is not good, madame. I do hope we can work out a compromise of sorts, using English. She laughed. That is not much of a compromise, monsieur, but it will not be a problem. Her lilting French accent had a noticeable impact on him, and he looked smitten. Sanjard smiled and quietly slipped away, leaving Matthew and Colette to get acquainted. Every once in a while he would glance their way, finding them first at the bar ordering drinks, then on the stern, pointing out and commenting to each other on the various landmarks, including La Statue de Liberté, La Tour Eiffel, and Le Grand Palais, among others, as the boat made its way slowly up and down the river. If Matthew had concerns regarding his ability to communicate with Colette, they were quickly dispelled. She was every bit as fluent in English as he was, having majored in the language at the University paris sabon Their conversation at dinner was animated, with neither spending much time talking to others at their table. The last anyone saw of them, around 11 p.m., after the boat docked and they had thanked their host and the captain for the evening, was when both got into the same taxi and drove off into the night. After that, the two were inseparable. If Matthew was in Europe, whether he was in Paris, London, Berlin, The Hague, or Moscow, Colette flew to his side. When he was in New York, she flew to be with him at least twice a month, staying at the Ty Warner penthouse in the Four Seasons Hotel at $30,000 a night. Within six months, they were married, and a lavish wedding attended by 500 guests. Galette's younger sister, Adrian, was her bridesmaid. Sanjar served as Matthew's best man. The couple honeymooned for two weeks on a private island in the Indian Ocean before returning to New York City and settling into Matthew's two-story, 8,600-square-foot penthouse apartment on Park Avenue. Now they were making their way arm-in-arm down Broadway, among the throng bent on celebrating the old pagan festival of the dead. Matthew was on Colette's right. Behind them, a man dressed as the pirate Blackbeard was gaining on them. He walked with an affected limp, and had a fake parrot sewn on his left shoulder. No one paid much attention to him as he pushed his way through the crowd, bowing and smiling, the gold foil covering one front tooth shining in the bright light from the overhead street lamps. As Blackbeard approached the couple from behind, he bumped into Matthew, startling him. Sorry, governor! The pirate tipped his hat, smiled at Colette, and limped on. When he was about sixty feet in front of them, he abruptly turned around and started limping toward them, "'Bowing and smiling. "'Matthew and Colette immediately recognized him "'and started to laugh, "'seeing the fake parrot flopping back and forth on his shoulder. "'The pirate tipped his hat to Colette "'and was just about to pass them "'when he reached into his jacket, "'pulled out a pistol with a silencer, "'and shot Matthew through the heart. "'The sound of the discharge, already muffled, "'was further masked by the deafening cacophony "'of noise emanating from the crowd. "'But there was no mistaking what had happened.' For an instant, Matthew froze. Then he crumbled to the pavement. It took Colette a moment to realize what had happened. She took one look at her husband and began screaming. Dropping to the pavement, she pulled Matthew's head into her lap, smoothing his hair with her left hand and swaying back and forth as if to soothe him. Behind her, several people lay injured. People were screaming, some out of fear, some for the police, who arrived quickly and cordoned off the area. Within minutes... Four ambulances and their crews were on the scene tending to the wounded. But there was nothing they could do for Matthew, and once again, Colette was a widow. By now, the killer had made his escape into the crowd and around the corner into a bar on West 42nd Street. Running past the patrons seated at the bar, he headed for the men's room. Finding the handicapped stall unoccupied, he entered, closed, and locked the door, and quickly removed the pirate costume from his body, stopping frequently, "'to regain his balance by gripping onto the handrails "'as he pulled the pant legs down. "'Once his clothes and makeup had been removed "'and stowed in a black plastic trash bag, "'he threw the murder weapon, a 9mm pistol and suppressor, "'on top of the clothes, knotted the ties, "'wiped the handrails with a wet paper towel, "'and made for the rear service entrance of the bar. "'There, a cab sat waiting for him. "'Opening the back door, he threw the trash bag "'to the far side of the back seat.' and climbed in, shutting the door behind him. Did you get the job done? asked the driver. It went this blend, replied Viktor Kuznetsov in a thick Russian accent. Hearing that, the driver turned around and pointed a nine-millimeter pistol Kuznetsov's forehead. That's good. The last thing the Russian ever would see was the tattoo of a cobra on the forearm of the man about to kill him.
0: We hope you enjoyed listening to this excerpt from House of Cards. If you would like to hear the entire audiobook, it can be purchased at Amazon.com, Audible.com, and iTunes.com.